this is a KTF Press podcast. I got to the place where I didn't even care if Jesus was around the corner. Like, if Jesus doesn't care about black bodies, then I don't think I can do this anymore. But the, the amazing thing was Jesus is around every single corner. It doesn't matter. And now I feel this sort of freedom to go, I'm going to chase the light. And, you know, in my chasing light, I have still not had to stop chasing Jesus. Welcome to this extra episode of Shake the Dust, leaving colonized faith for the kingdom of God. I'm Jonathan Walton. I'm Susie Lahoud. And I'm Cy Hoekstra. We are so excited to be here. This is not quite season three yet. We'll get you more details on season three in a minute. Like Jonathan said, this is an extra episode that we are putting out because our newest book is out now. If you can hear the sound of my voice, Faith Unleavened, The Wilderness Between Trayvon Martin and George Floyd by Tamise Spencer-Helms is available. You can go to faithunleavened.com. We have... Tamise uh, Spencer Helms here with us today to talk about the book. Uh, but again, go to, go to faithunleavened.com. You can find the book in paperback and ebook form. Um, Susie, for people who do not know uh, who Tamise Spencer Helms is, first of all, obviously shame on them. But second of all, <laughs> uh, could you tell them who Tamise Spencer Helms is? God is gracious. God. <laughs> So for those who do not have not yet had the privilege of knowing to me, Spencer Helms, get her book, first of all. It's out. Uh, second of all, to me, Spencer Helms is a theologian, author, and speaker living in Richmond, Virginia. She's the founder and CEO of Subculture Incorporated, a nonprofit that provides holistic support and crisis relief for black college students. Throughout her 16 years in full-time ministry, she supported and ministered to countless young adults. She holds a bachelor's degree in religious studies and copywriting from Virginia Commonwealth University, a master's degree in contextual leadership from Wheaton College, and a master's degree in theology from Fuller Seminary. Yes, that is two separate master's degrees. This woman knows what she is talking about. Mm -hmm. She has been on the ground. She has been in the classroom and she is here to teach us some things. So thank you so much for joining us today, Tamise. We're just so grateful for this opportunity. So excited to talk about the book. Thanks Mm -hmm. for having me. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Well, just to to jump right in, um, can we start with the title? Uh, Because I know that you were so intentional about choosing how to label this book, um, mm-hmm. how to frame it. And and so can you just give us a, a snapshot into your thinking around using the language of unleavening at a time when folks are, are really talking a lot about deconstruction and decolonizing, but how do you feel like the idea of leavening became so helpful to you and important to you in your faith journey? Yeah, that's a good question, Susie. I think mostly it has to do with the ongoing process of recognizing and extracting things that are harmful in my theology, my process. Uh, the other part of that is to, like a lot of times the deconstruction language, um, it can carry, sometimes can carry like kind of a vitriolic kind of stigma to it. And when I think about unleavening, I mostly think about recognizing holes or areas that what I'm believing about God or others, where that stuff is causing like kind of toxicity in the way that I live and move in the earth. And I think that just 
you know, by nature of growing and living here, you're going to have plenty of times where you're going to have to deconstruct and reconstruct. And so to me, the leavening language seemed a little bit more um, appropriate for kind of how I'm thinking about my process these days. That definitely makes sense. I And along with the, the unleavening, you also have these, these two um, pivotal people, pivotal events mm-hmm. um, that kind of bookend this journey, right, in Trayvon Martin and, and George Floyd. And so one for those people who, who may not know who they are and why they're significant, not just to um, the culture in the United States and to their families, but why are they significant to you? Um, I think both of them were very catalytic for me in recognizing where I was. I think Trayvon in 2012, um, the news of his death and the dealings around his death was the first kind of, it was the first time I let myself feel all of the things I had been kind of stuffing down um, and really began to ask serious questions about what I was believing and how I got um, to the place I was where no one in my faith or religious community even knew Trayvon's name. And what was weird about that for me was the idea that, that I was in a place where we talked about being very close friends with Jesus, about hearing the secrets of his heart. And um, so for People to be saying that they're best friends with Jesus and have the secrets of his heart, but but Jesus is not saying anything anything to them about the uh, about Trayvon Martin or about racism or about police brutality. Mm-hmm. That started to make me question a lot because I'm black and this is affecting me. Um, and if Jesus doesn't have anything to say about this, what does that say about me and the way that Jesus relates to me? And so that kind of was the initial thread that got pulled that caused the rest of the unraveling. Um, and then in May, um, you know, years later, when, when George Floyd was killed, um, the way I handled it, um, the way I broke was not the same. Um, the anger was there, but it was fueled by something else this time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there wasn't as much despair involved. Um, it was just a, a more sober, holistic way of mourning and grieving, I think, when mm-hmm. I heard the news about uh, George Floyd. Um, and that was the first time that I kind of realized, wow, there's been a process here that I'm, I'm a different person, um, upon hearing this, um, than I was upon hearing Trayvon and that, and that kind of is the impetus for the word of the wilderness used in there. Uh, cause I emerged with kind of a new understanding of God, a new understanding of myself and, and a lot more freedom. Um, mm-hmm. and so I just call that, that time frame between the two deaths a wilderness. Yeah. That, that makes sense. If you were to, to tease out that process a little bit, um, there's, you know, you have this, and you talk about it amazingly in the book, this like unhelpful, terrible, toxic interaction around George Floyd, I mean, around Trayvon Martin. Was there anything in your process that was different, um, that specific that you can mention with, with George Floyd? Yeah. Um, for the first part of it was that I was actually feeling it all, and I did mm-hmm. not feel far from God. 
So I felt all of the same feelings I felt around Trayvon, the, the anger, the confusion, the even some, some of the hopelessness that can come in moments like that. But the difference was I felt those things kind of like in God this time mm-hmm. where I didn't feel like I was begging Jesus to care about me being black mm-hmm. uh, or to care about um, racism or to care about the violence done to black bodies. I wasn't begging Jesus <laughs> to care about that um, or wondering whether Jesus cared about that. I actually saw Jesus um, was with Jesus and, and really had come to this conclusion that like, you know, Jesus came close enough to be killed. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this really experiential understanding Jesus has of violence um, there was a way I could enter into to pain and mourning and prayer and even rage, but I could do all of those in Christ um, mm-hmm. with with no question about mm-hmm. whether Jesus cared or whether Jesus was near to me. Um, and that was different. Um, that was that was really different that time around. Amen. <laughs> Finding yeah. value and resisting the feelings of expendability and disposability because you're rooted in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you for expounding on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I like that, especially because, well, not especially because, I like that. One, one reason I like that is because you are not telling a story in this book where it's like, I, I discovered more about Jesus and that wrapped up all of my questions in a neat little bow. And now I feel great all the time, <laughs> You're not, right? It is very much a story of now I can grieve like a human is supposed to grieve. Right. Mm-hmm. I can stand up for for my worth and my dignity in the face of all of the terrible things that are coming at me and not like, I don't have to worry about all the things that are terrible that are coming at me anymore. You know, it's just, it's a, you, you become by the end of the book. And also, I know in your real life, <laughs> just like a very real person, a very real whole person, as opposed to someone who is struggling mm-hmm. a ton with um, just the difference between how you view yourself and how everyone around you yeah. views you. And I, I yeah, the, the whole, the, the book is basically the story of how that happened. And mm-hmm. it's just, I don't know, it's so beautifully written. And I, I love that we <laughs> had the privilege of, of, of publishing it. <laughs> It's yes. funny that people like they just kind of um it's funny to hear you say that because I think one of the harder things that I had to hear um and you hear some of that in the book but um that I was changing and becoming mm-hmm. a different person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. But what I knew I was experiencing was resurrection in life. <laughs> and so for people to um that was a really hard thing to navigate navigating um the fact that you know, and I, I still talk to God about this a lot, you know, navigating the fact that there were relationships in my life that um, I did where I wasn't a whole person, mm-hmm. where I wasn't uh, fully present. Um, there's even, you know, reputations you create for yourself when you're not even fully in your body, not even fully present. Um, and the sad thing about that for me was the fact that I could go so far in leadership without being present to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, go so far in ministry even. And so um, I hear you saying that and it's a, it's a, it's a bittersweet thing because it's kind of like, you know, there are years that I lost and I'm seeing the beauty from those ashes, but there are still years that I lost. Um, mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways I'm getting to know myself and I'm, you know, pushing 40, you know, so yeah. that's an interesting, mm-hmm. um, that's an interesting space to be in. 
Um, and to be doing that in front of a, a kid who's, you know, like, it's just a, I'm in a very interesting stage oh, yeah. of life. Um, but I think I'm, what's exciting is I'm modeling for her what it looks like to, to live a life uh, that's given to Jesus, that is following Jesus, but is fully confident about my own goodness and my own, you know, personhood. I think that that's a good model for her. And I see it in her. So I'm excited about it. <laughs> yes. And, and we'll yeah. say that her is this awesome little girl named Harlem. Yes. Yeah. Harlem. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Someone told me, my friend Robert told me Harlem is, uh, what did he say? Um, Harlem is what you would have been like if you had known you were loved. Bless it's God. Really true. Yeah. I mean, it's really true. She's fearless, confident. I mean, completely herself. She's she's the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Wow. Back on wow. the point of uh, you kind of no 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 no. Proud mama. <laughs> no, 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 Proud I'm, mama. Not, I'm just trying to go back to something you said. I'm not saying you went off the rails. <laughs> um, <laughs> back on the point you made about. Um, uh, uh, kind of being like double-minded almost and like yeah. being totally burnt out and outside of yourself, but also doing ministry work there. I, I just wanted to, to mention there's a point in the book when we were editing where you are, you're living in Atlanta and you're basically talking about how completely burnt out you are and how you, your, your Christianity is essentially you, as you say, taking a couple of shots of tequila and going to take communion on Sunday That's morning. Right. Mm-hmm. Tequila sunrise the, service. Your, your, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. But at the same time, you're doing full-time ministry. And yeah. I just remember when we were editing, I was like, I this, I understand how this happened, but you have to like acknowledge to the audience <laughs> that <laughs> like it is actually, sadly, something that like anyone who's done ministry understands. Like there are people mm-hmm. out there doing ministry who are 100% like disassociating Mm -hmm. and like don't believe half the stuff they're saying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and like that, that is a reality. And it is because in a lot of cases, I can't, obviously people aren't a monolith, but I, it is because in so many cases people are not able to just acknowledge the grief and the doubts and the pains and the fears that they have Mm -hmm. and bring them to Jesus because they think they're not supposed to, because Jesus won't love them. And like the whole, I don't know, it, it, I, I just loved, I loved you telling that story so honestly is what I'm saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was just an interesting, I, 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 I was so broken. Uh, I just remember, I think about that often and, and I'm thinking about it as I'm doing, you know, podcasts and things like that and putting myself back in these places of just the, um, gosh, it was just so much despondency and brokenness. I was so, by the time Mike Brown happened and, um, you know, Trump announced that he was running, I was so, I didn't even know how to even name the levels of, all I can say is low. I was mm-hmm. so low. And I, I remember just, um, having these conversations with Jesus, not even knowing whether I like Jesus, whether Jesus liked me, whether I even believed Jesus was real, but I was still having these conversations of like, what was that? I love you. What happened? Like, how did I end up here? And it was just such a, um, a dark place that I think, you know, at the, in the book where, you know, things start to shift. I really needed that. I'm not sure how much more I could have uh, pretended I was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, by that point. And so when God like speaks to me, um, at the end of that chapter, like, um, it was just, it was really perfect timing and it was really, 
it was a lifeline. It really was. Um, and I'm on the other side of that, looking at that as like, you know, the, the, like, come with me <laughs> out of bondage. <laughs> like mm-hmm. here's where we're, we're going. Um, and you've yeah. missed something here. There's something that's been added to this that isn't me. Um, and can we, can we begin to have that conversation? I'm giving you permission to ask me those questions. I'm giving you permission to talk to me about this. Um, mm-hmm. And that was like, that was a game changer. It was a mm. game changer. Let's, yeah. let's actually talk about one of the things that was added uh, mm. to your faith. There's, there's a character in this book, a, kind of a main character in this book, <laughs> whose name is White Jesus. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> and and like, capital W, capital J. We talk about him in the whole book. And, uh, yeah. I, Spoiler I, t- alert, t- it is not the Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Facts on facts on facts. <laughs> Let's, um, can you just tell us, uh, cause you, you didn't grow up in a white church. So tell us how you met white Jesus and, and what he is like. Yes. I still remember the day, May 21st, mm. 2001. Oh, I know. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I had to write it down on my little card. That's why uh-huh. <laughs> I remember the date. Um, but yeah, I, I was invited to a play, uh, or what my friend who invited me was calling a play. And it was, uh, we went through all of these scenes. They had like different sections. It was like these like double wide trailers that had been, it was a really interesting performance, (laughs) but uh, you walk through this sort of like, almost like a scavenger hunt where you're like watching, you know, teenagers die with, you know, the fake blood coming out and all of these things. (laughs) Um, And at the end of it, it's dark. And we're just there. And, you know, you can hear people kind of sniffling in the room. I mean, it was traumatic. I mean, you're watching people do like car accidents. And and they were showing you hell, right? Like it was like, yes. yeah. Yeah. They were showing us like where, where we were going as teens if we didn't, you know, accept salvation essentially. And so Jesus appears and, you know, we do the the thing about like, you know, is your name in this book? And I had no idea what the book was, never heard of the book. And, um, but realized very quickly that I couldn't leave or like, like have any sort of like hope for my eternal soul without getting in this book. Um, so I said, yes. And, uh, we went, uh, in the back and then they kind of had me say all these prayers and, you know, talk to me about who I was before God and what I needed to, what I needed to do in order to be accepted by God. And, um, so I was like, okay, well, yeah, <laughs> like, I don't, I mean, what do you do? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I met white Jesus there. That's where I first encountered, um, the mythological figure. And I think mm-hmm. it's important to say that because, um, why Jesus is a main character, but myths, even if it, myths are powerful regardless, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, they still have power. And I think, uh, from that point on, I started doing, uh, all of my discipleship in white evangelical spaces, uh, stopped going to church with my family and just really felt like I was becoming more and more serious in my faith. Um, mm-hmm. I was growing as a disciple of Christ. Um, so, you know, to get all the way from, you know, 2001 to th- 2012 and to realize um, something is wrong here. Like, wait a minute. What happened to me? Hmm. Because there is this there is this kind of pain in my side about this 17 year old boy that no one else is feeling. <laughs> uh, and and that was that was really an, that was an intense realization. Uh 
it was really intense to realize that. But met white Jesus in hell. That was a play. <laughs> we all had to go to the flames. I mean, it was <laughs> for se- to be 17 years old and have to go through that. And it was just like, you went to church that evening. <laughs> like, yeah. You come home traumatized. Like, I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I think it's an important point that you were scared into a relationship with white Jesus. Yes. And, yeah. and yeah. then, you know, you basically started to get, you have a whole chapter on how he was, his followers basically separated you from the black church you grew up in mm-hmm. and gave you a whole bunch of things to believe about how that church was inferior. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, just the, the, could, could you talk a little bit about kind of what white Jesus was like to you? Like what now, like looking back, what his discipleship with him was, was like? Yeah. I mean, it works as long as you don't, as you, as long as you don't exist. And I know that what was hard about that is when you come in at that kind of an age, you're not fully formed. Um, you're wet cement, right? And so then you're hearing all these things about, um, you're, you know, ontologically, you are a sinful person before God. And there has to be this like step before God can relate to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so entering into any kind of a relationship with a person who you're being told this person is like, loves you unconditionally, um, forgives you no matter what, but there's like this step first, right? Like, and so the condition was, was Jesus and Jesus having to die for me and those types of things. And I think when I look at those conversations, they were very different conversations than I was having in my parents' church where it was just like, God is good. He came through. Like it was just much more, um, how would you say organic? Like the way that we talked about God in my parents' church was just God was making a way out of no way. God was keeping us, right? Like there was a very different posture. In the other frame, it was very much like God is kind of angry and kind of unpredictable. And it was never really clear how I was doing with God. And and people would say, you know, you're forgiven and it's over and, you know, once and for all. But the messages I were he- was hearing was always about like, you know, did I do my quiet time? Have I been listening to secular stuff? Like it was always kind of this question of whether or not I was actually okay with God. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and what I would say is that Jesus of Nazareth used to talk to me when I would read in the gospels. And I would always hear this phrase of like, we're always okay we're always okay because it's, it's finished, (laughs) you know, we're always okay because it's finished. And those things would kind of, those were like kind of the crumbs I talk about in the book that I would carry with me um, of what Jesus was actually like. And so what Trayvon did was really kind of make the juxtaposition very clear that the Jesus that I've encountered in my times in the word and the Jesus that I'm being called upon to worship and, um, they seem different because Jesus was with me. Uh, I, I felt Jesus when I saw Trayvon's shoes and I cried. Um, and, and the pride that I felt, like even when I talk about Obama, like the pride that I felt, it, it was just so much um, anti-Blackness, like reticent in the way that I was being taught to love, know, and follow God. So that is just fundamentally it's a nightmare waiting to happen. Like fundamentally I was a black woman, like, you know, like I, I'm a black woman. So 
if white Jesus is who I'm supposed to become, how is that even possible? I'm never going to be a white man. Like never. Mm-hmm. I wasn't made to be a white man, but that seems to be the end and the goal of my discipleship. Um, and and that was upsetting. And so there was that, there was the binaries, there was the, everything was based in fear. And if it wasn't fear of hell, it was fear of losing credibility or losing my job. Um, it, it, I mean, it's just so much fear that kind of surrounds um, discipleship when it comes to white Jesus, that it was just, that has to be the first thing that goes if you're ever going to get out. Mm-hmm. So the, it, it, the framework is sort of perfect fear keeps you in love. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it, it really is just like the opposite of the scripture. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, those are the things of like, you know, in naughty list, we talk about interpretation, right? And it's kind of like, wait a minute. You begin to ask yourself questions of like, wait a minute. If, if perfect love casts out fear and fear is all that's characterizing my life with God, one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. So like, how am I supposed to be walk out of faith based in the thing that the faith is supposed to cast out? It doesn't make any sense. And it it will, it just, it just won't have good fruit. I don't think not long-term. Absolutely not. If I could go back to, sorry, I love that you brought up that passage in the book. Um, one of the many, many powerful passages that has just really stuck with me. But to me, when you talk about the tequila sunrise service And I just, I think about that all the time because it's just, I think the most raw picture that I've ever seen, the most honest picture I've ever seen of what that looks like, what that feels like. And also I think it's one of the only times I've seen someone write that experience, express it, having come out on the other side of it. I feel like Mm. a lot of people go through that and they, they experience that death that you describe and they don't get to experience the resurrection. You know, they don't come out Mm -hmm. living, breathing more whole afterwards. And so that's, to me, that's one of the many beautiful pieces of this book is I I read that and I think this is something you can hand to someone who's going through that. This is for all those who have prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm -hmm. And then having hope that there is life on the other side of that prayer. And and that is not going to look the same either. It is new life. It is fundamentally transformed. And um, so just wanted to point that out as, again, one of the just really raw, powerful, unflinching moments in this book. But also I just wanted to ask you a sort of a follow-up question to that, Tamise. Again, there's so many moments like that here where you just lay it all out there and you offer up your experience so that other people can be fed. And I just wanted to ask you personally what – what felt the most raw to you writing this? What yeah. what passage really? Yeah. Um, because again, you really, you give of yourself very generously. <laughs> I can't imagine what it was like to live it. But if you could just share with us, um, for you as a writer, what, what was that like? Well, I think it's a couple of different parts of the book. I think the chapter um, about my grandmother um, is really important to me um, because I was writing that um, at a very kind of precious time in her life. And so um, that part was really raw. Um, and then obviously writing about my my marriage, my Hearst marriage, um, was catharsis. <laughs> um, it was catharsis and it was also validation. I think 
um, up until that, up until, you know, Faith and Levin's, um, I only lived that story. I never like watched it play out. And uh, so mm-hmm. to be free and to be on the other side, to be whole and happy and write about what happens to me, there were a couple things that came to mind. One was, damn, I'm strong. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Other was, uh, Jesus is extremely kind. Um, and it is very much, you know, um, there's a phrase that there was a lady who lived in my complex right around the time that, um, my marriage, I was done. And, uh, she would always come to my apartment, uh, cause she would hear some of the things that were going on and she would always come and visit and kind of play with Harlem and stuff like that. And, uh, she would always say, don't forget that God can make a way out of no way. She was just a wonderful woman. And, uh, and I felt like writing that story, it just made me think of her, you know, and the way that she looked at me when I left and the fact that, oh my gosh, like these, um, this beautiful tapestry that Jesus has done with even the pain in my life. And that, you know, you know, we go to the naughty list side, like we were just talking about how these people believe God will make a way out of no way. I can't mm-hmm. see it. I don't know. Like I might not have even all the information, <laughs> but I, I, I believe God. And so I would have never thought that, 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 phrase would mean so much to me because I didn't grow up in the same time as people were using that phrase when it really counted. But I look at my story and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm singing the same song that my ancestors sang, that my grandmother sang. Like God made a way um, when it seemed like there was no way. And um, and it was the strength was kind of like on the inside of me. <laughs> so it was like, you know, I had to come to a place where it was like, you know, the hinge for all of this was me looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I like what I see. And so does Jesus. (laughs) And like, I think that moment was kind of the final push um, out. So that part was really, it's really raw, but I feel like very thankful for the writing process because obviously I'm going to have to talk about a lot of really hard points in my life as we, you know, promote the book and stuff like that. But I feel this real sense of um, gratitude to the Lord for that. Uh, And I think that was probably the most, the most raw was obviously having to relive some of that trauma and write about it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Another follow-up question to that to me. And thank you for sharing about that. Um, What's your, uh, circling back also to your, your proud mama mama earlier, I just... (laughs) I love that quote, and it's so poignant about Harlem that she is you if you had known that you yeah. were loved. And yeah. and I just think about this book also and just the impact that it's going to have. And um, I just want to ask you also what, you know, what do you hope to see happen through this book? You're someone who has served, as we read in your bio, for years with specifically with Black college students. And you started an organization acknowledging – it's so amazing when you talk about this and I'd love if you share about this more, but acknowledging that that Christian organizations were willing to fund students going to conferences <laughs> and retreats, but wouldn't help pay for their transportation, their books so they could mm-hmm. eat and have housing. And so you are someone who really, I think has also seen and loved and known so many students and young people and 
just folks who are, are struggling and wrestling with the same things have had to struggle with some of the same trauma and mm. pain. Um, acknowledge the the white evangelical church's silence around police brutality, not just silence, like actively, aggressively trying to deny it, downplay it, gaslight. Yeah. So really violence committed by the white evangelical church around mm-hmm. these issues. And um, and again, just what's what's your hope for this book? What do you want to see happen um, through this this continuation of your ministry? <sighs> Susie, with the good questions. Um all right. Like, so what I really hope, and it's part of the it kind of full circle side of, of the question about why using, or it was John, I don't remember which one, the using the unleavened term, because I remember what I cared about in that space. I have experienced beauty from those ashes. And I know that people are extremely sincere. Hmm. I think one of the things that can be missing in some of the deconstruction and some of the like, what I lo- I'm loving that people are getting free. I think what happens or can happen and what personally I'm trying to avoid is um, creating a caricature of uh, the places that are making a caricature of me. And I think if I could give people the courage and the permission they need based in um, and answering the questions they care about, um, I'm hoping that they will feel like they can get jostled from being stuck. And, um, you know, around right around the time, you know, I got divorced um, or was separating, it was so hard to think about who am I going to be? Like, <laughs> what I have built a whole life, you know, people, I mean, get married, have kids, name the kids, choose, you know, more than spouses, choose schools, cities, you know, countries to live in based in some of this. And a lot of them are waking up to something is not right here. There's something toxic in this bread. And the good news is that it's not the bread. And what we are seeing kind of plastered everywhere is that people are kind of rejecting the bread, right? Like Mm -hmm. the whole thing is rotten and I'm out. And right. It's true. Like you can't, you, you know, you can't, you know, can't actually unleaven bread, but you can start over. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can work with some of what was there. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what I'm hoping people can do is to feel free and completely confident that, um, their life, their worth, their ministry, their choices were not in vain. Um, but that Jesus is around every corner and there's only way to kind of find that out. Um, and I think for me, I got to the place where I didn't even care if Jesus was around the corner. Like if Jesus doesn't care about black bodies, then I don't think I can do this anymore. But the, the amazing thing was Jesus is around every single corner. It doesn't matter. And now I feel this sort of freedom to go, I know I'm going to find Jesus around this corner. I don't have to rush it. I don't have to have anxiety. Like I'm going to chase the light. And, you know, in my chasing light, I have still not had to stop chasing Jesus. And I think, um, what happened in 2015 was I realized the light was going in a different direction. Why Jesus, <laughs> why the lights went out on that. 
party. <laughs> Lights went out on you, dog. <laughs> um, so like, but I mean, there was some stuff. There were some crumbs that I got in those spaces, dear friendships. You know, a lot of them I lost. A few of them remain. Um, but but I don't regret that time. And I don't want people who are feeling like, you know, hopefully the book speaks to some stuff. I, I don't want people feeling like they have to do that alone. I found community. I found that people who really love Jesus actually love Jesus. And I'm still in relationship with people we don't even theologically agree on most things about. Um, and that's what's been so beautiful about unleavening is you find out um, things get really real. Things get authentic, right? Like unleavened bread is just, it is what it is. It's very simple, mm-hmm. but, it, but it's sustenance, right? And so that's what I've been finding in, in, in my relationships um, that Jesus is big enough um, and kind enough to let us figure this out <laughs> and to recognize like, hey, this isn't sitting right. Um, and I'm going to actually trust that you're merciful, trust that you're good and begin to kind of like critique and question this. This doesn't feel like. It doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. And I know that we have theologies about our feelings as a podcast for another day, but I think, um, you know, I think I inherited a trust in uh, truth being spoken in my inward parts because my ancestors, that's where it was spoken to them, right? Uh, it certainly wasn't spoken to them from the world around them over here. So like, um, so I think that's where my hermeneutic or like my, uh, theological premise comes from is that my ancestors had an intrinsic internal resistance to a toxic message <laughs> and nobody would question that decision, uh, mm-hmm. today. And so I have to trust that it'll be the same when Harlem's my age. Mm-hmm. I I have to ask you a follow-up question, but I want to, I want to say a, a phrase that stuck with me from what you were just saying was, um, those people mm. um, are very sincere. Oh, yeah. Right? And not to caricature their sincerity. Mm-hmm. Um, because we can be exceptionally sincere and wrong. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that, I think, is a, mm-hmm. is a toxic combination. Um, and so in the, I think it was James Baldwin, he said, I'm going to mess up the quote, but it's just like, people are so scared that black people will respond the way that we've been treated mm-hmm. and praise God that we don't. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that, that challenge to rehumanize, even as we are dehumanizing, as you've talked about mm-hmm. um, in Jesus is pretty, I mean, yeah, that's just, that's just amazing. And so if you were to go back to that tequila sunrise <laughs> service, yeah. And share an excerpt from the book with someone. Mm. What excerpt would you share, and who would you sit down with? I mean, this could be anybody. We just dreaming, like anybody. So they're sitting in the back of the church. They said, "Yeah, they're they're with you, and you can you're gonna take out this book." Oh my gosh, KBD and James Baldwin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Ellie Brown Douglas and James Baldwin. <laughs> so let's imagine, let's imagine KBD is there, Kelly mm-hmm. Brown Douglas, for those who didn't get the acronym, and James Baldwin are sitting there with you. Mm-hmm. What excerpt would you share with them? I would be laid out on the floor, Jonathan. 
let me think. Um, I think, you know what I would, I would probably give them the epilogue. I would share the epilogue. Okay. Because I think it encapsulates everything, right? And mm-hmm. um, most of the rest of the book they know about, I didn't know about them. <laughs> I wish I would have known about them when I needed mm-hmm. them. Um, but they know all of that stuff. It was It's nothing about my story, um, except that it's mine, right? So the characters are unique to me. But there's nothing about my story that would surprise them. And there's, there's a sadness to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think the epilogue would be a, uh, an assurance to them that, that what they've put out into the world is doing for people what I hope my book does for people, right? Because I think mm-hmm. it was in reading them that I really, um, felt seen and heard and okay. And oh my God, Jesus is here. <sighs> there was an exhale. And, uh, but they, you know, I think the epilogue, I hope what the epilogue does is not put a pretty bow on it, but say that we can do this day by day and step by step. Um, And I think that I would want them to read that and be like, you know, well done, even though they're not, you know, Jesus. But Mm -hmm. I would like to hear them say that too, shoot. So (laughs) (laughs) Dap you up in glory. That'd be good. Dope to hear Kelly Brown Douglas or James Baldwin say to me, well done. Like, good grief. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, I feel like Jesus has already said that to me. So, yeah. It's it's interesting that you say none of your story would have surprised them. Because in the book, you say that about your grandmother. Mm, like wow. you basically say you, you knew your grandmother pr- probably knew, you know, the break was coming and you would find your way back to Jesus. Like mm-hmm. it, she doesn't seem to it, yeah. you, the way you portray her is she doesn't ever seem like that's not going to happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so true. I think um, I don't say this in the book. So this is exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> y'all better tune into this podcast but there was a lot of frenzy in my family around the obama election in terms of me and them being worried about me my grandmother called me and was calm as could be and uh i think that was her way of saying hey people are worried for the right reasons um but my mom is not worried and i love you and no matter what is happening around you, this is a momentous night. And you need to know that from your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and obviously, I'm talking about the uh, um, the election of Obama in 08. And uh, my family was really worried um, because I said some really horrible, harsh things. And, uh, and so my grandmother calling me was kind of her way of saying, like, you may have kind of, like, left us but we're not leaving you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed that in that moment. It just really was very, um, just in writing it, it was just remembering all of that in hindsight and seeing the hand of God, right? Like, Oh my gosh, this has been, you've been here. Uh, so that's something I didn't write about. Um, I didn't write about a lot of that frenzy, um, but there was a lot of it going on uh, mm-hmm. for a little while there. So, Tamise, you thank you for for sharing all that. And if you could just give our listeners, um, for folks who haven't gotten the book yet, for who haven't read it yet, you do talk about the Obama election in one of the chapters, and you do provide context for why you were in the place that you just described. 
um, that was causing this frenzy in your family. There was an environment that you were in that created that. And so if you could just share that, because I think that's also that broader sort of political, socio- sociological, cultural context is also a really important part of this book. And a really impart- important part of the moment, I think, that it speaks yes. to you. I had no idea uh, what it meant to live in a red state. Uh, I, I, I had no idea. I had no concept of um, politics or anything like that. And uh, so I was introduced to this place through just attending conferences and things like that. Um, and at one of the conferences in particular, first of all, it was just a very um, energetic place. You felt things. You, I mean, it was just electric almost, right? And so you're in this place and you're hearing these messages that seem like a whole like different way of viewing, you know, God and the way God feels about us. And it was introducing these new paradigms to me. Um, and then, you know, one of the second or third times I went, I heard a person get up on stage and it was the only black person I had seen on the stage. And they were talking about God saying to black people that it was time for them to come out of Babylon and join this like movement. And, um, that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is raising up this, you know, army of people who are fully devoted and, um, you know, humble and all of these things. It was like, yes, of course. Like, who wouldn't want to be involved in that? I want to do it. And so I, I went out of there. I went out there because it was just really hard, uh, to be neutral about a message that was so potent. You, you just really couldn't mm-hmm. do it. Um, there, there was not a lot of nuance in some of the things they were inviting us into and some of the things that they were um, presuming about, you know, the coming of the Lord and things like that. So it just you couldn't just go and not have some sort of response. Um, and so that's how I ended up out there. Um, I had no in hindsight, I can see how I started to change and I became recluse and um, just my personality began to change a little bit like that. Um but yeah, that that's how I ended up out there. And I thought it was mostly just kind of being like a in a monastery. Um, but um, it had a lot of political uh, stuff going through there. Uh, I remember, I actually remember one time, and I was just looking at this, it popped up in my timeline. We had Eric Metaxas come and- uh, Oh, Lord. Yeah, speak on the platform. And the way that they- um, lauded this guy because he was writing about Bonhoeffer and like, you know, we're, we're just like this and da da da. Uh, we're just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. That, that God is speaking prophetically about that. <laughs> right. Uh huh. <laughs> um, and so actually James Cameron Carter has some really great uh, insights on that, by the way. But anyway, um, and so I remember remembering that and remembering how much excitement there was about Eric Metaxas coming and all of the people being excited. So then when he's, you know, arguing in 2020 with folks that Jesus is white, it was like, (laughs) what had I gotten myself into? Right. I mean, it was really like, I cannot, I mean, this was when you understand whiteness and the fact that it does not exist unless it exists at the expense of blackness Mm -hmm. and to realize that I'm in services, worshiping a white Jesus that is this sort of 
embodiment of all these mythological norms about white supremacy and like it, it just it, it was very sickening um but i ended up out there and that's i think I, I mean i do know that that's why my my family was pretty worried because that was during you know palin and like mm-hmm. essentially telling them they need to vote for palin uh because that's what jesus would have them do mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. or and it was just really they were very concerned <laughs> sincerely concerned right like genuinely (laughs) incorrect fervent in the nonsense i called my uh i called my dad and i was like dad i dropped out of school i'm moving he was like every time you go out to that place you come back here talking all this stuff like i was like i'm doing it this time dad jesus has spoken and i mean and and my dad and i didn't talk for a while Mm. it was intense Mm. Uh, as much as I don't want to end on the note of you and your dad not talking for a while, <laughs> we, do, we do have to go. <laughs> um, that, that's the cliffhanger, and now you have there to go. There you go. Me and daddy are talking now. <laughs> Tamise, thank you so much for joining us today, for writing this incredible thing, for for letting us publish it. Um, we are just so happy yeah, with this project. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, faithunleavened.com uh is is the website where you can get the book ebook or paperback it's all available there uh to me where else can can people follow you on the internets yeah on the interwebs uh i'm at tamis namay speaks on instagram i have a Substack. that's tamis namay speaks um tamis namay on twitter and do i have anything else i started a tiktok y'all but <laughs> Don't expect much. <laughs> Spell the May for people. Oh, N A M A E. Cool. Um, you, by the way, you can learn the whole origin of Tamisa's entire name in the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, thank you so much. Please, everyone, faithandleaven.com. Go check it out. Uh, as always, our theme song is uh, Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art, much like the cover of Faith Unleavened, is by Jacqueline Tam. Jacqueline Tam. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, We will have more information on season three soon, but for now, we're all about this book. Please go check it out. Thank you so much. Bye.